what if what these chuckle fucks are up to? Raw and uncovered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
not chronological order to really capture Victor Hugo's spirit, but my inability to tell a story in a chronological order means that I'm already there. Um, so, yeah, I thought that actually we were done with Waterloo and then realised that I hadn't really talked about Napoleon. So, Who here we was back. Napoleon? He was a guy. Um, Damn. <laughs> the end. <laughs> um, so I actually watched a, we'll put the link uh, either in the bibliography or in the show notes, but I watched the four minute clip of the horrible history's like roundup of Napoleon's career, <gasps> where he chaotically tells you in four minutes what Napoleon got up to. So I'm going to chaotically, even more chaotically tell you in two minutes. <laughs> okay your, your second well, star okay, yeah, the before, before we start uh okay a quote okay, from, from napoleon bonaparte history is a set of lies that people have agreed upon damn <laughs> damn just to like think you about wrong but okay are you ready minutes. stevie are you actually gonna time me because that will make you me bet, a, I a wait let me clear my throat <laughs> i mean i'm not gonna time you and you don't need to worry Okay. Are you but, timing them? Um, <laughs> tell me I, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> okay. Um, so you, you could go if you wanted to right now. Okay. So, Napoleon was originally a French soldier in the army and then turned into a revolutionary soldier. He was put in charge of the 1796 army when the People's Republic took over. He took He conquered Italy and Austria. He was made governor and then changed that title into emperor and called himself mm. king of Italy. He goes on to beat Prussia and Austria at the Battle of Australia, the uh, creating the French Empire and successfully invades Spain and half of Prussia. Uh, Holland puts his brothers in charge of those places. Europe <laughs> isn't so happy about this. So they fight him in a war. He gets sent to jail for 100 days, but they didn't put him far enough away. He's back in France. Raises an <laughs> army because the people fucking love him, or at least his soldiers do. Loses the Battle of Waterloo, and they finally learn their lesson. We're sending him further away. Italy's not far enough away. Sending him to a tiny little island near Africa called St. Helena for the rest of his life. Damn. I didn't wow, know about the ending. Time to come back. Yeah. <laughs> huh? See, that Sorry. was that was one minute and, and five seconds. Yeah. I'm fucking telling you. Horrible history. <laughs> <laughs> And that's basically all you need to know about Napoleon, I would say. Damn. I didn't know the ending of that. I assumed that he died, which tells yeah. you all you need to know about I mean, my... He never died. <laughs> I mean, no, he didn't die on this island. Well, you know what I mean. I, I, well, I assumed he died in, in battle of some variety. Um, which mm. yeah, tells you about my, my ambient history knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I think I only I just... knew it because I read it in a book, so... I mean, that's well, not that's, like... That's a good way to I gain mean... knowledge, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a good way, typically, that people um, improve their, their knowledge about things. Or you could just watch horrible, horrible history videos instead. Yeah, it, like, in my head, I was like, I didn't even watch a horrible history video. <laughs> I read, it in a, read book. a book. <laughs> watch a fucking video, Nemo. <laughs> Kids these well, days, they never watch their fucking videos. Yeah, I like had no idea about the before the Battle of Waterloo, he had already been taken down, but that this was him, the bitch is back, and there's hell to pay. 
Battle of Waterloo, let's go, oh shit. Like, I don't know, I thought he'd been reigning real strong until Waterloo, so that was, like, kind of interesting to to learn. It reframes his hubris in an interesting way in the battle. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) You know, like, him being like, oh yes, I cannot be defeated, like, after having been (laughs) been (laughs) defeated it's a whole different story really isn't it (laughs) napoleon go to jail yeah so that was like as much into napoleon as i felt was really required because we all know who this is really about and that's victor hugo yeah (laughs) you ain't fucking wrong so victor hugo's dad had been like a big napoleon supporter so as a young child baby hugo was like oh my god he's amazing uh, <laughs> and then in his like early 20s he was like no I'm a royalist fuck this guy actually um, and then by 1828 sorry he uh, flips it again and is like oh I think Napoleon I don't know mm-hmm. um, and he's back on that bandwagon which you can see a lot in like his poetry so I was looking at the source the god man and the man god <laughs> by Marissa Getty Taylor and Stephen Taylor um, where they're basically like comparing two very important poets whose the way they talked about Napoleon really shaped our views of Napoleon and wouldn't you believe it but Victor Hugo was one of those poets <laughs> there was a man he was walking along in this article his name was Victor Hugo <laughs> Yeah, like, I think Hugo would have fucking loved this. That they're like, wow, one of the most influential works in the evolution of the Napoleonic legend. Um, and it was Victor Hugo. So the one, <laughs> the one they're mostly focusing on was one that was written 1828, published 1829, and you're going to love this in his collection of poems called The Orientals. Oof. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, in the French is just called, like, Dui? But uh, when I found myself a nice little translation of it, which will, I will also link on Project Gutenberg, has been, the title's been translated to My Napoleon, which is kind of cute, I guess. Oh, <laughs> um, oh is it um, Sui as in S-U-I? Uh, no, L-U-I? L-U-I. Oh, lui. It, it's something to do with, like, uh, the source really got into it, but I was like, this isn't necessary for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah valid, but it's valid. Like, it kind of like sh- is a shows that uh, he's talking about Napoleon in a sort of divine, omnipresent kind of way, like something about in French, like has all these connotations that uh, doesn't have like an exact um, English representation. Yeah, yeah. So apparently, this poem marked the turning point in Hugo's personal attitude towards the controversial figure who he first depicts as a usurper, later as a tyrant, and finally as a romantic hero. He couldn't resist. Oh my god. <gasps> Ooh, I wonder if this is um, the thing that, you know, at proper adults always talk about saying, you know, oh yeah, you'll become more conservative as you get older. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, it like, I read that bit and, bit and was like, wait, fuck, we just had this shit in the actual book, so I'm writing this book report for you. Yeah, <laughs> so... This guy, this uh, secondary source is saying that the text itself has Victor Hugo 
in the Waterloo bit, being like, oh, young eyes looked ardently towards it, but a strange paradox. They were both in love with the future, which was liberty, and with the past, yeah. which was Napoleon. So I was like, are you acting yourself? Or what is this, Hugo? It does feel like quite a um, a sort of a kill your darlings vibe to it, if you know what I mean, like that. Um, the fact that, you know, he his dad had idolised um, Napoleon and that, and you can imagine him sort of growing up in this way. And then as he got older, you know, wanting to go against his father and believing something different. And yeah, it's interesting. Very uh, Mary's promise <laughs> Ooh. Nemo, made it textually re- relevant. Love it. Oh, don't worry. Marius is going to come up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, this would have been a really good place for the Marius stuff to come up, but I'm going to flip back just like Victor Hugo would have wanted. Yeah, so I read through this poem that it's talking about, and it, it's this very, like, uh, there's a lot of light and fire imagery that definitely comes across in a sort of like biblical sense like reading through I was like okay um yeah and the tailors yeah the tailors uh the point they're making is he's very like almost like in awe of Napoleon at this point in this poem and like it the beginning is very that like wow my literally my lips are quivering and like I'm gonna talk about this guy and he's this burning (laughs) light and he burns eternal and like all the metaphors are that like he's always been burning and maybe he's the sun god Ra if you think about it and like wow he's always going to be here we he's always going to be in history he's making this huge shadow because he's just such like this bright light and all that kind of <laughs> all that kind of fun stuff a lot of height imagery a lot of towering uh he's <laughs> everywhere uh and everywhere a giant uh yeah the the tailors are sort of likening the progression of the poem to like the story beats of christ where napoleon's getting his disciples because all all the soldiers love him and he's conquering well he's conquering but you know christ conquered ideas if you think about it and um (laughs) (laughs) oh my god and you know when christ got like put in that cave for a while but napoleon got sent away to be alone and that's very Christ-like. Um, oh <laughs> um, yeah. That coming from a guy who get exiled is... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, th- this was written way before... Yeah, Victor Hugo got exiled in 1851, and currently it is 1829. Yeah, important to note. <laughs> mm. Oh, man, I can't believe he fucking foreshadowed his own... Um, <laughs> Christ complex. Yeah. Oh no, I can't believe I set it up for him. I'm furious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I played myself. So, like this kind of like, like literally the whole poem. The poet voice is like, wow. I just like can barely speak about it, guys. That um, <laughs> this is like very different from his earlier poem. Uh, in 1822 from a collection that is odes and something else from an earlier collection of poems uh the poem is titled bonaparte i desperately looked for this poem anywhere (laughs) or in translation i don't want to think about how many hours i looked for this poem and i couldn't get my hands on it so we were taking the taylor's words 
uh, as lore on this. Um, but that in this early one, he describes the former emperor, emperor as like a fleeting source of a of dawn without sun. That like going from this light imagery of like oh, Napoleon, your light's been snuffed now. You're not even going to be remembered. To this like this eternal sun god and the light that he shone <laughs> in like not many years like he kind of turned on that fairly rapidly and it was just like funny because it's so we've got this whole source is like here is how we think of napoleon now was shaped a lot by these two poems so you've got victor hugo um and this other poet and the other poet has like Napoleon's gonna meet God and like bow his head and be like yeah okay I did some stuff and then Victor Hugo's one they're arguing very much implies that he's like no I'm an equal to God um (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to bow my head God Victor Hugo the fact that it's Victor Hugo saying that as well who has such a fucking well I was I was gonna say a reverence for God it's like wow that's wild (laughs) that he would have that (laughs) (laughs) well I feel like it, and I think they were kind of arguing later in the source that they're like, this is like very Victor Hugo of him because, you know, only the way that he talks about Napoleon and the way he elevates Napoleon could be on the same level as God and Victor Hugo for Victor Hugo. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad the Taylors have such a good read on him. (laughs) But yeah, so it's very much that like this kind of like larger than life figure was very much like like he was, but the way Victor Hugo started this trend and some of this imagery influenced that a lot. The sort of like God thing was kind of interesting because they were like, oh, well, Napoleon sometimes was like, oh, I have no time for Christ. And at others, like, they're like, oh, it's hard to say. Um, so especially like having Victor Hugo having him be on level with God versus the other poet bowing his head to him. And the, the tailors just like cracked me up so much. They're like, Napoleon's personal personal relation with Christ remains beyond verification. <laughs> but it just made me like I know that it's meant that it's like we we can't really say whether or not he was Christian at the end, whether he repented on his deathbed, that was quite a big thing for people to do. But it very much felt like a what was their personal relationship? Napoleon <laughs> God in a very like a seeking gossip way that's yes. quite delightful. <laughs> Um, yeah, so here we've got the, and it's very enthusiastic about Napoleon, kind of Victor Hugo, which brings us on to a source that I'm pretty sure I've brought up before, actually, uh, Victor Hugo and the Visionary Novel by Victor Brombert. Um, Sounds familiar. I remember. Yes, yeah. I remember this title. This guy gets into Waterloo for us. Um, yeah, this, like, was kind of setting up earlier in Victor Hugo's life, like, so if this this very reverential poem, which he never really flips on in like the late 1820s, um, Les Mis was written in the only book not in my hand. Well, it was published in 1862, so a lot can change by then. So, you know, we were sort of trying to figure out what is his read on Napoleon mm. while we're reading Waterloo. Um, and it was like, is he a big fan, kind of? Is he like, fuck you, a little bit too? So Victor Brombert, uh, his sort of stance on the whole Waterloo digressions is that, uh, like, it's tangent. It is very tangential, but it's no digression. Um, could be more central to the plot than this one, and that this whole thing is that Victor Hugo considered the Waterloo episode as the spiritual gateway to his novel. 
<laughs> I can't believe that we wasted all our time having that conversation when obviously Bromba has the answer. <laughs> That's interesting because I, I was just looking up how long it took for Victor Hugo to write Les Mis. And apparently it took him 17 years to write mm. Les Mis. So I imagine that his opinions on Napoleon at the beginning and at the end of the novel, considering how much it changed throughout his life, were probably quite different. Mm. It probably sort of evolved while he was while he was writing. Yeah, I think there was definitely things that would have helped change the influence. So, like the his very like bright eyed and bushy tailed uh, take on Napoleon mm-hmm. was pre him starting the book. Um, yeah, but I think it was post him being exiled by Napoleon the Third. So, ooh, that's going to change some things for you. <laughs> <laughs> We will get to Napoleon III, not much, but like eventually. Um, but yeah, so that this whole Waterloo thing was the spiritual gateway, blah, blah. But even then he's like, so because, you know, at the end of it, when he's talking about Tenardier, and I'm like, well, okay, yeah, that the fucking Tenardier thing can be the gateway to your book, but did you need... You, you're not saying what do you think about the rest of Waterloo? <laughs> but yeah, but that is the confrontation of good and evil, um, and like starting the saga of rebirth because Tenardier was trying to steal from Marius's dad and unintentionally, unintentionally saves him. Um, so this is like a big deal. Um, and the 1815, which was the year of the Battle of Waterloo, um, I think I have brought this up before actually, that um, this is a date that he, Victor Hugo uses a lot in the text and we know he doesn't just choose dates out of nowhere. Nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, this 1815 was the year that JJ emerged to social existence from out of his spiritual prison death. <laughs> oh, spiritual prison death. What a throwback. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw that line and was like, fuck, I have read this before. <laughs> was um, it is it as far as i remember it's it's spiritual prison parentheses death right no it's that everyone felt like there should be some kind of oh uh, i see and yeah. it's whether or not i wrote it down when i wrote the quote mm-hmm. <laughs> so 1815 is our spiritual prison death um and is also the year that uh, good versus evil in the bishop's house, uh, the beginning of JJ's spiritual rebirth. So that happened in the same year is what I think is coming from this, that, yeah, 1815 is when everything sort of flipped for Napoleon and changed for France, the outcome of this war, and it's also the year that JJ gets out of prison for good, but as we remember, like, at the beginning, was a bit feeling a bit rough about it, has his Muriel thing, we're back on a good road. <laughs> <laughs> Goes from spiritual prison death to um, spiritual bishop rebirth. <laughs> <laughs> ah, here we go. Here's the Marius. Much like his young hero Marius, Hugo has been entranced by Napoleon's battles. Um, <laughs> the uh, that this was the Romantic generation having reached the age of manhood after the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, so exhibiting symptoms of frustration and, and impotence. E.g., he says, Marius knows he can never equal his father's military prowess. And that, uh, God, I made myself a plan, and yet, impotence. Where are we feeling impotent? No, not yet. Um, 
But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that makes sense for Hugo to have like to be one of those people who, yeah, he was very young when Waterloo happened. I did look at the timeline. So he wouldn't have been a part of that, whereas his own father would have been, um, at mm. least maybe not necessarily that particular battle, but had been involved in Napoleon's business. <laughs> um, so yeah, that sort of you become a teen and you're like, fuck this guy. What does this even matter mm-hmm. to me? <laughs> Getting a bit older and you're like, oh, ugh, I'm so romantic now. And like, it's pretty cool, right? <laughs> yeah, and Hugo does love some Napoleon nostalgia. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone on that huge tangent, I argue. <laughs> so then we get to go to, like, these, these are all vaguely connected. These were just things that interested me. Another source that I at first was like, am I recognizing some of the stuff, some of these notes that I'm taking? And it was like an old friend. Um, oh. Go back on on reading French, on rereading French history in Hugo's Les Mis. Um, Could you say that you were rereading, rereading French history? <laughs> I really did. I didn't notice till I was done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, uh, that's by Angelo Metzidakis, that basically Victor Hugo presents a very selective reading of the 19th century, um, well, 19th century French history. And this, I'm pretty sure has come up before, that he was doing this to try and convince the bourgeoisie of the Second Empire, run by Napoleon III, basically to be in opposition of that government, and that this would serve the bourgeoisie's own interests, as well as those of France as a whole. Um, And that was maybe one of the goals of this book, says Angelo. Um, And that Hugo was interested in the bourgeoisie readership for this reason, because with an, with like their education and like their cultural upbringing, he's basically advocating for revolution of the mind and words and peace, opposed to like the f- former republic, which ideals were violent anarchy, militant socialism, and that also in this very all-over-the-place essay that I'm writing for you. <laughs> also, did Waterloo? Yeah, when he says it, Waterloo, blah, 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 put an end to the overthrow of European thrones by the sword, but the effect of this was to cause the work of revolution to proceed in another form. The thinkers took their place. <laughs> Come on, did they though? Did they though? Oh my god. I mean, this is what I think it seems maybe he wanted. Because, yeah, like, Mm. reading the Waterloo segments, it is that mixture of, like, I know he was like, oh, I'm not trying to make the battle sound cool. Sometimes you can't help it. Um, (laughs) But then he would be good to be like, this was kind of devastating and look at the scar it's left on the landscape forever and i think i think we have discussed probably years ago at this point how he actually feels about like the violence of revolution like is he for or against that he doesn't Mm -hmm. and then i guess that that does make sense to sort of wrap up in how does victor hugo feel about napoleon it is this mixture of like oh he did this and he had to be unseated so that the 19th century could get on with it and change and grow in some ways. You've not done growing and here's my book to say why. Um, (laughs) I mean, like, his opinion's kind of sprinkled about slash, like, implied in, like, a lot of the sources that I have read over the years and I'm just like, I don't need to take note of that yet. (laughs) We're not at the revolution (laughs) yet. But, yeah, his feelings do seem to be, like, mixed. He wants change but is not so sure about the violence. Is violence needed? But then maybe it kind of is. I, I'm sure we'll, we'll 
we'll discover for ourselves. But yeah, that was like four hours of fucking research and I bashed it out in about 15 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> classic. That's what you want to hear from a like fucking book report. <laughs> yeah. Those were all, they seemed like they were connected when I was hopping from one research topic to the other, but I was like, yeah, 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 this will make sense. Yeah, it did it make did. sense. It's just history. So I'm like, I have nothing to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is this is not um, textual examinations, which you know. I guess I kind of flew through the beginning of the Napoleon life breakdown and Victor's uh, flip on how he feels about Napoleon. But I feel like it could inform, like we just did the Waterloo reading. Does it change any of how our interpretation? I, I do think the um, interesting thing of like, yeah, it took what was it, 18 years, 17 years, his opinion would keep shifting is something good to keep in mind. And yeah. the life thing of the exile at the end of Napoleon's life. Nemo. Yeah? Stevie, confirm for me, it was um, it was Hugo who wrote the poem about Napoleon being like the sun, right? Like the sun god Ra. Yeah. Um, I mean, in in this essay, the essay that I'm writing, in which Enjolras is um, is Napoleon, oh God. <laughs> um, is likened throughout the text to Apollo, um, the Greek god of the sun, the Greek and Roman god of the sun. I feel like what Stevie was saying about the um, Hugo's relationship to revolutionary thought versus violence. Is quite interestingly reflected in his mm. relationship with Vilgeras as well, because there is that sort of balance between these are people who you know debated revolutionary thought and that sort of thing. They were students; they had potential in that sphere, and then came to violence. And it would be interesting to see whether whether one of those is sort of glorified above the other, the other in um, when we come to it in the text. Mm. Interesting. And so I, I, I brook no other interpretation now than that um, Napoleon <laughs> is Enjolras, that Enjolras is Napoleon. <laughs> well, it that, has been for, for me, that is, yeah, for me, that is, that is legit now. That's there. Face claims. <laughs> yeah. Face, no twigs. Oh, hate that. Hate that a lot. <laughs> um, but I think, like, all of those things tie in mm. a lot um, that... Napoleon is is um, that Enjolras is representing um, that's that relationship that sort of thought or if not the actual man himself but the same um, the way in which Hugo is interrogating his ideals um, and his ideas around Napoleon. It's interesting because I'm like my first instinct is to be like no, but that's mm. only that's literally only like but then I was interrogating that like mm. it's literally only because I guess we have, or at least I have, no, I think we've like had this like mutual surprise, right? Mm -hmm. That like um, Napoleon isn't being, uh, isn't being portrayed as like evil, stinky man, bad (laughs) by Hugo. And that he does have this like positive, these positive aspects. Yeah. Um, So like me being like, no, but Hugo wouldn't, 
uh, make parallels between Napoleon and E is literally just my brain being like, because he's stinky Batman. <laughs> yeah, and Horus is pretty and glowing and nice. Yeah. Yeah, and Hugo has a hard-on for Andra. Like, yeah. <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. if it makes you feel better, it's Napoleon the Third that Victor Hugo's like, you stinky, awful, tiny man. <laughs> and wrote this yeah. poem called Napoleon the Little. Because um, I, like, <laughs> I was desperately looking, because I really wanted to, for myself, read his earlier poems about the first Napoleon, just to be like, okay, yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Um, mm. And I was like, wow, these are fucking coming for him. This is, um, this is amazing. I'm just going to check the here that he was written. And I was like, oh, the wrong Napoleon. How many Napoleons <laughs> were there? So there was Napoleon. And then he had a son, and I just don't think about Napoleon fathering a child. <laughs> oh. I don't want to think about it. Yeah, why would you make me think about that? Well, because Napoleon the second, uh like so Napoleon eighteen fifteen is like, we're sending you to jail for good, you lost Waterloo, boohoo, your last chance. Um mm-hmm. you blew it. So Napoleon's like, okay. But you should still put my son, Napoleon II, he's he's still in charge though, right? And they're like, no, you dumbass. So Napoleon II's cousin, so Victor, uh, Victor Hugo's, <laughs> so Napoleon yep. I. Plot twist. Who is the Napoleon who um, in 1850 gets the French Empire going again and he's the one that Victor Hugo was like you're a goddamn traitor to France and they're like Hugo get the fuck out of France and that's why he's an exile <laughs> um, so it, he is the Napoleon so third Napoleon he is the one Hugo has personal beef and mm-hmm. implies mm-hmm. it a lot through Les Mis. Um like I was coming across a lot of quotes of there but I was like we're not talking so much about Napoleon the third today I'm not writing those down but yeah, no, he, he had a lot of beef with him. And Napoleon III later on tried to be like, oh, you know what, okay, you can come back. And Hugo was like, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Which also reminds me, when I was like, when was Napoleon exiled? I'll ask Google. And the, the goddamn Visit Guernsey website was the first one to come up. Oh my god. <laughs> I was like, okay, go on then. And they're like, why was Victor Hugo exiled? I was like, that is what I'm asking. I didn't expect you to be answering me, Genzi. Another one Genzi tourist board. And they're the ones that answered it because they were like, so here's the history of it. But you know, like he wrote some of his best work while he was here. Like you could say that Genzi was what really inspired Victor Hugo. <laughs> oh my god. So I'm going to link that as well in the wherever we put links because it was like a very shining moment for me this morning. I mean, they've got very little else going for them as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know very little about a Guernsey, so I would I would hate to make such an assumption. But <laughs> they, put, Just... they put some very nice pictures in this yeah. article about why was he exiled, but I'm not sure. Maybe they're implying that this is how he was staying. And if it is... Very lavish. Oh, it's so lavish. And he had, uh, what was it? Like, he had, he basically had this, like, house on the sea that was, like, super big. And then, like, he remodeled the entire thing, like, constantly. And it was, like, um, every room had, like, uh, hand-engraved things. And I think there were, like, chairs that said, like, 
the the father, the son, and the ghost, and all that kind of shit. Like, oh wow, wow it sh- he sure was the the man talking about how yeah the the poor really were having a rough. Because you need to be listening to me right now because yeah. you're the fucking and about, problem. <laughs> God, about Muriel giving away like. His uh, his silver. Oh wow! I'm I hate at him. Velvet chairs right now. I'm looking at pictures of oh. this house with its velvet chairs. I hate I hate rich people. I just I hate them. I'm being like, but sir, that's my emotional support, personally engraved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you forget the silver was actually in this reading. I will say that the silver was Muriel's. Emotionally, emotional support, silver. <laughs> like, you know, it reminded him of his past and that sort of thing. And yet, he gave it up. You're so right. You're so right. <laughs> yeah, I just like to imagine him sat at. In fact, I'm going to send you this picture so we can all be on in the podcast, and you, you all at home, open it too, so we can all be on the same page. <laughs> Victor Hugo sat at the little chair in the second image. The one with a cushion on it. You'll know the one. Oh, is it going to be mahogany with a with yellow um, something or other? Oh, wow. we don't do yellow. God. We do gold. Oh my god! Oh my god! I just so we're all we're all looking at the chair. Um, Victor Hugo <sighs> sat at his desk in this chair. That desk with I don't know how what's inlaid into it, but it has been inlaid. Like boohoo! <sighs> it's like just really hard because uh, Napoleon the Third has like. Maybe no way. I just don't know how to feel about that, guys. This is literally how I decorate my house in Animal Crossing. There are too many things, so I just shit put shit everywhere. I just like it. This literally looks like a palace. Mm, I like how all three of us are just like staring at this picture. Like, yeah, I would recommend, dear reader, that you do the same and just sort of spend this time that we're, we're this empty air that we're producing right now, um, also <laughs> experiencing the same experience because, yeah, holy shit, you know, yeah, like it, this actual visit Guernsey <laughs> article is where it was like, yeah, he uh, Napoleon III offered amnesty and it was like, you can come. Um, but he stood to his principles and he refused to return. And you're like looking at the pictures and you're like, <laughs> yeah, why would you? His <laughs> private palace on his tiny island. <laughs> yeah, like apparently this is where he like, he wrote so much more while he was here than while he was in France. You're like, yeah, he had nothing to do, but <laughs> be lavish. Like, yeah, of course he wrote more Hugo. Have you seen that photo of Hugo? But it's, I think it's like a selfie, basically, that he took of himself and he's like sat next to the rocks and he's like all like romantically looking up in the air. It was in the museum that we went to, the Victor Hugo uh, Museum that we went to in uh, I can't remember it at all. I guess we'll have to go back. <laughs> yes, we'll have to go back. Buy us a coffee so we can go to Paris. <laughs> and then Guernsey. And then Guernsey. Oh, wow. I do actually kind of want to go to the Guernsey house so i can just walk around it and be angry yeah <laughs> that's where we'll write our uh, victor hugo's light is gonna be put out so quick like <laughs> he's a dawn without the sun and then in 20 years time we'll write another poem actually no not even 20 years time eight years time we'll write another poem that's like 
wow, the sun just never sets on Victor Hugo. <laughs> I eternal, and have you considered that Victor Hugo is Jesus? Have you thought about that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's just a thought. Yeah, I think we should have. I can't believe in eight years we're starting the Hugo religion <laughs> with Huguenots. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we this. I can't believe we we slept on calling this podcast. The the sun will never sleep on um, Victor Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not too late to change all of our shit. Um, so this has been uh, the sun will never sleep on Victor Hugo. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, send us an email to the sun will never rise on Victor Hugo <laughs> at gmail.com. Um, I actually think that's probably too many. Uh, what are they called? Oh, we can Letters. we can uh, make it into an initialism. I'll try and work out what the initialism would be. Sun uh, no set Hugo. T S W N S O V H or Tsunov. Tsunov. well that kind of is all i've got for you guys but if anyone like has something specific they would actually like me to research about napoleon or victor hugo and napoleon first second or third's relationship just let me know (sighs) just send me a message i can boil five hours of research into 16 minutes of chaos Please send us a send us a message and ask CV to write your essay. <laughs> yeah, send send a very specific quest about mm-hmm. question about one thing to Snenov at <laughs> This has been Snenov, a uh, blameless podcast produced by Minimum Martin. It's a uh, Captain's Collections podcast. Oh, thank you to the other Kofi donator. Yeah, an angel. Elena. Yes, thank you to Eleanor. To Eleanor for being enthusiastic about the content that we produce and the translator that we're going to be looking at soon. How exciting. Wow. Maybe you should come back for the next episode. There's <laughs> <laughs> such cock Jesus with this stuff. Thinking about lifting the book from your little fingers that were reaching too early for Jean Valjean. Oh, oh, so oh. send us some oh, reviews no. and I'll let your little fingers go. Our audio director is Jade, who you can find on her website, jadewasabi.com, or on her bandcamp, jadewasabi.bandcamp.com. Great. Good job, lads. So yeah, thanks for listening. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Oh, God. Oh, no. But you should still put my son. Yeah. I'm gonna interject with what I was thinking. Oh no, she's back. Oh sorry, you, you should stop put my son. My son.